O Heavenly Father, we confess this morning with the pages of the Revelation we find in Scripture that it is by your good pleasure alone that you, had ransomed, that you have ransomed this collection of souls from the miry clay, the death of sin, unto salvation, and also, Lord, gathering in this place to worship you this morning. You are our great God and King. You are our high priest and sacrifice. You have made propitiation for our sins. You have satisfied the debt of judgment that was deserving us, Lord Jesus. Uh, when we were caught in our transgressions and sin, Father, truly only hell was what we, Lord, deserved and what we would surely earn if left to our own devices. But Jesus Christ has intervened. He shed his blood and applied it by his Spirit's sovereign work to each of our hearts that confess him as Lord this day. And so we worship and thank you for this opportunity to lift our voices together. We pray, Lord, that you would return us to that moment of relief for each who has felt the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, that first love moment of salvation as we make contact with the truth of your word in your scriptures this day and as we sing these songs of adoration unto your holy name. We also pray that you would equip our feet for walking in the footsteps that you have prepared in advance for us to walk in. Not that they are meritorious in one iota, but instead, Lord, that it is the overflowing joy of our hearts to bring glory to your holy name by serving you and obediently applying your great and mighty, unchangeable and infallible word. We pray through the ministry of the Spirit's use of the means of this service today that you would equip your saints for the work of the ministry and that if there are any hearts, Lord, that fellowship here that are yet distant from the cross of Jesus Christ, that you would draw them like Lazarus, saying, come forth through the proclamation of your scriptures unto new life in Christ. We thank you that you and you alone have the power to do so, and therefore we give you praise and we give you all the credit, all the honor, and all the glory. Now equip us to understand, open our hearts to love, and our minds to comprehend your great word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What a great gift and grace it is for us to join together in the reading and understanding of his word today. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 23 in your scriptures. Matthew 23, in a moment I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the word of God. Today's message is entitled, Practice What You Preach, a simple, common, almost cliche phrase. You know the term, I'm sure you've heard it before. It's meant to imply that there are those who preach one thing and do another, hypocrites we call these types. There are the classic hypocrites that appear in the Gospels over again in the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious rulers. I submit to you this morning we are often quick to judge them, and in some ways, hypocritically ourselves. To pass over the message of Scripture too quickly, thinking, that's not me. I don't fit into that category. Yeah, I hate hypocrites as much as anyone else. Go get them, Jesus. You know, speak to those people over there. I would encourage you this morning as we open the Scriptures to uh, be more sensitive to the Spirit's power to convict. And as we read these instructions from our Lord, remember they are for our hearts this day. Let the Spirit search our hearts to see if there be any wicked way in us, to see if there be any shreds, any vestiges, or maybe pockets of cancerous hypocrisy. And if we find them, if the Spirit illuminates them to us, that we would repent so that we might diligently honor Christ. 
with that introduction, would you, if you can, stand with me this morning and let us read Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12 together. Follow me as I declare God's infallible word. Matthew 23, 1, we have. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, sit on, G- on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12, serves as a prologue to arguably the most scathing, thorough, and direct of all the sections of Scripture that appear in condemnation of sin and particular sinners, in this case the scribes and the Pharisees. In all of the Gospels, we find some of Jesus' strongest or perhaps his strongest words in these chapters or chapter 23 of Matthew and 24 and following this passage that we read this morning is followed in verses 13 and following by seven woes which is an invocation of judgment upon those who are deserving because of their heinous crimes against the Lord of glory the preaching of the kingdom of God would not be complete without these indicting words I submit to you For those with ears to hear, the magnifying glass of the scriptures and of Jesus' proclamation passes over, as it were, it it passes over common heart defects of all too many of us through the ages. And with the sovereign scrutiny of the scriptures laid over the dirty heart of man, if it reveals to us our sins so that we may confess, repent, and walk in holiness, Truly, these words are a great mercy indeed. Jesus expounds the substance of the kingdom values in his ministry as well as as exposing its enticing and deceptive counterfeits. That is, there's both the positive declaration, what is the gospel, and there's the negative analysis of that which stands as a counterfeit or as a substitute that instead of giving glory to God, pretends to be something like him and steals from his glory and therefore will incur judgment. Later in this same section or in this chapter, Matthew 23, 23, we have this verse. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Notice there's three elements that they are faithful unto. A tithing of mint, dill, and cumin. Yet these are juxtaposed against three elements of the law that they're oblivious to. 
What are they? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus says again, 23, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He describes us in verse 24 as straining out a gnat and swallowing the camel, being careful to measure out exactly by weight and ounce and millimeasure the mint and dill and cumin that you owe to God as a matter of course and tithing and so on in the law or sacrifice and offering, but forgetting the intent, the whole uh, meaning, the whole weight and heart of the law is summed up in justice, mercy, and faithfulness. This is a summary statement of the problem that's featured in this section. The intent and the value of the law, his hearers, it was totally lost on his hearers. Though they boasted in their expertise, in their expertise on these subjects, uh, these straightforward attributes, justice, mercy, and faithfulness were lost on them. The depravity of the human heart took advantage of the pharisaical system and their position. And instead of loving these things, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, they substituted others like legalism, tyranny, and hypocritical pride. Legalism, tyranny, and hypocritical pride are common sins for those in influence and authority. These virtues that we read about, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, are the difficult, narrow, less traveled path. But the wide road that leads to destruction for those that are in any place of privilege is paid with legalism, tyranny, and pride. In the final analysis, these systemic sins were the reason that the religious leaders hated Christ. They hated Him, and this was obvious in their contentious antipathy. They were picking a fight with Him. They sought to entrap, to belittle, and to arrest and eventually destroy him. Why? Because according to John 12, 43, they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from Almighty God. The evidence of this contentious antipathy, if you will, or this uh, fighting spirit, this anger and animosity towards Christ and his word has been preceded, uh, has preceded our text in these examples in Matthew 22. Remember verse 15? Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk. Why did they do such a thing? Because they were the hypocrites that he condemned in chapters 23 and 24. Verse 23 of Matthew 22 says, The same day Sadducees, another religious group that fell into the same category, was guilty of the besetting sins of influence. The same day Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question and then proceed to make a convoluted hypothetical up out of whole cloth meant to confuse the Lord. The Pharisees say again in verse 34, that, or they heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together, got one of their preeminent leaders, perhaps the smartest they thought, to go and ask him another question. This man, a lawyer, he asked, verse 36, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus finally, in the close of this section in chapter 22, asks them a question they cannot answer. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They can answer that much. He's the son of David. He, that is Jesus, verse 43, said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Verse 46 in their present state of mind, in their contentious antipathy, in their hatred of the Lord and His Word, and their hypocritical pride, 
no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. However, Jesus continues to speak, and he calls out the sin that kept them blind to the word of God, calls them ultimately unto repentance, but if they did not repent, judgment would come. There are teachable contrasts in the context of the passages that we've read this morning and a couple others. Teachable contrasts. I'd like to touch on a few of them this morning. Let me list a few and then we'll expound them a bit. First of all, there's a difference between where the Pharisees sit and where Jesus sits. One of the teachable contrasts in context is Pharisees sitting versus Christ sitting, and we'll expound on that a bit. Secondly, and briefly, there is a difference between the Pharisees' deeds and actions, their works, and Christ's Beatitudes, which is more the positive teaching of the kingdom that preceded in, a, in his first great discourse in Matthew 5. We'll notice how juxtaposed against one another, they're almost, indeed, polar opposites. Number three this morning, there's tassels and phylacteries that are referenced in context. This is curious to us, probably because it's countercultural to our experience, but upon a little more study, we find that Phylacteries on the outside are drastically different than what was inside the phylacteries. And then fourthly this morning, there is a difference between the glory of men and the glory of God. Let's explore these contrasts a little bit this morning. First of all, Pharisees sitting versus Christ sitting. Again, uh, Matthew 23, 1, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you. This term, sit on Moses' seat, is one of judicial authority. The significance of sitting or seat is expounded in the context of the scriptures. Thayer's lexical resource has this sentence to help us understand. Sit on the seat, or sit on the seat which Moses formerly occupied. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that the Pharisees sit on the seat, which Moses formerly occupied, they bear themselves as Moses' successors in explaining and defending his law. So God's law was written and mediated in a sense through Moses. It was written down, but then there would be a lineage, there would be a delegated uh, lineage or a chain of those who would then uh, proclaim his law and judge according to that law to be experts in it and authorities on it. These were those who were appointed, according to the law of Moses, to rule accordingly, to act as a deputy, an agent, or a judge. Something like an attorney today, right? I mean, we see even in our context that there was a lawyer in view in verse 35, the prior chapter. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. That a vocational designation of a lawyer simply means that he was an expert in what Moses had to say, and he was supposed to be skilled and apt and wise in applying it to trying situations. Well, this is what they projected, the Pharisees, that they were the heirs, the judicial heirs of Moses. They were, in fact, more like Eli's sons. You remember Eli? He was the high priest. But his sons used the position of high priest to their own advantage, or priesthood to their own advantage. Once they got to that place of privilege and influence, they used it to abuse the people, to break God's commandments, and to do things that were totally out of character with God's law, all in the interest of serving themselves. They would uh, take from the sacrifices, 
They would commit acts of immorality with the worshipers and so on. And as they were doing this, they were displaying the besetting sins that fall on those who do not understand the fear of God when they are placed in a position of leadership. Instead of justice, mercy, and faithfulness, Eli's sons, though in a different way, the Pharisees also displayed legalism, tyranny, and hypocritical pride. The besetting sin of privilege, influence, and power is here evident in the way the Pharisees acted in their position and in their role. Is there any application, is there any relevance of these principles to us this day? Well, brothers and sisters, I'm sure you, if you pay any attention to the news, are well aware that we're in a political season where leaders, candidates are vying for the most important, perhaps, political position globally, the presidency of these United States of America and our country, of course, carries a lot of influence internationally. Now, those who are seeking that office, are they free of the desire to give or take a bribe? Are they ones who, use their, who would use their position as leverage to build up their own resume, to glorify themselves, to pad their prideful uh, pedigree, and to write basically another autobiography and just to sell it or get on great speaking tours and profit from their notoriety and fame? It seems like positions of leadership are rife with this kind of behavior this day. There is a message for those who are tempted in this way. And this message comes in the word of Christ and the woes of Matthew 23. Repent, fear God, do not take a bribe, lay down your pride. Remember that no one comes to Christ as self-important. No one is in good standing with God if he thinks that Christianity, following uh, anything along the lines of what a Christian ought to do, is there to better himself ultimately. Ultimately, you are, you exist and follow Christ unto the fame of his great name, to increase his influence, to manifest his glory. What did John the Baptist say? We covered this in recent weeks. I must decrease, he must increase. Are you the one? There were people who were willing to anoint John the Baptist as the Messiah, follow him to the death. Did he let, him do, let them do that? Many men would have not been able to resist that temptation to make them the hero. Well, as long as they're following me, I might as well lead. And then they begin to uh, indulge these people's worship ultimately. John the Baptist did not do so. He was a man of humble means, and he recognized where he stood in light of God's law as a broken sinner. And he said, there's one that comes after me, the only one that you should follow, worship unto the death. And his sandal strap, I am not worthy to untie. The Pharisees were entirely, and the uh, scribes and Sadducees were made up of an entirely different attitude altogether. Notice that this uh, seat, Moses, sitting on Moses' seat, follows immediately after another reference to sitting. Rewind a few verses and we find this again in chapter 22, verse 43. He, Jesus, said to them, how is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Do you see here? This is the ultimate seat. In this section, 
the Lord, God the Father, is speaking to God the Son, Jesus Christ, saying, sit at my right hand, assume the position of authority, become my deputy, agent, and judge, and rule accordingly. You will be, as it were, uh, the primary agent to dispense, to rule, and to manage all of the affairs of the universe. This is the ultimate seat of significance, and it is occupied by Jesus Christ. He will and is putting every enemy under his feet. This according to the prophecies of old in Psalm 110. Those who would not recognize that Jesus, the Messiah, who spoke to them God's word, who said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, who did not follow him as Lord God, Savior, and Messiah, they were, they were relying or distracted by or deceived by another seat entirely. And the Pharisees thought their seat of Moses, heirs to Moses' uh, law and judging, uh, was superior to Christ. They dismissed him on that basis. And we see the contrast here, where the Pharisees sat, where they saw authority resting, and where Christ sits and where authority truly lies. If the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, if we, if we are wired this way and our pride to disregard the ultimate authority of Christ, do not repent, what will be our sure end? We will be an enemy that is put under his feet. We will receive the woes that are due us who did not bow the knee before his lordship, his manifest glory, his power, and his authority. Matthew 22, verse 44 is quoting Psalm 110, 1. And it reveals that the Pharisee's seat of authority uh, is not the highest indeed. But above all, the highest seat of authority is occupied by Jesus Christ. And this was proof of the scribes and Pharisees' self-idolatry when they failed to recognize that Jesus Christ was the ultimate King of Kings and that submitting to his seat of authority was in fact their duty. And they would in fact do it if they honored Moses at all. And that leads me to John chapter 5. Turn there with, a moment for, uh, with me for a moment if you would. Uh, recently, we took a brief excursus in our Matthew series to cover a passage in John chapter 5 where Jesus substantiates his authority thoroughly. And in this section, we find that anyone who would claim to sit on Moses' seat would self-incriminate, would incriminate themselves if they did not surrender to Jesus Christ. There is a great irony here. As we cross-reference to John chapter 5, verses 43 and 47, we, we find the following. I have come, Jesus is speaking, in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now it is much clearer, is it not, in the context of all of Jesus' proclamation along these lines. The scribes and Pharisees sit on the seat of Moses, so practice what they observe, however, uh, uh, 
and observe however, whatever they tell you, but not what they do. They did not recognize, though they claimed the seed of Moses, that Jesus Christ was prophesied by Moses himself. What would Moses have done if he were alive when Jesus arrived on the scene? You don't even have to ask that question. Why? Because he appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration next to Elijah. And in the presence of the glorified Christ, in that moment, uh, Moses deferred to the authority of the one who owns the ultimate seat and throne of justice, of faithfulness and mercy, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the law. How dare anyone claim the seat of Moses and not follow Moses' lead as John the Baptist did and say, this one, follow him. I spoke and existed to point to him. His sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. Moses accused these men. They self-incriminated uh, they were self-incriminating in their claims to sit on Moses' seat because they would not listen to the very word of God that Moses spoke that said through, his, through the uh, law and all that it prefigured that one would come to supersede him and he was here. Pharisees sitting versus Christ sitting. Finally, under that point this morning, there is a difference, a contrast between legalism that was represented by the Pharisees and intercession represented by Christ. What is legalism? Legalism is a term that's thrown around very conveniently uh, these days, but a lot of times without qualifying its true meaning. Let me offer to you a few phrases. Legalism is judging by false standards, first of all. If you use yourself as a standard, compare each other among yourselves, or if you have a standard, any standard other than the Word of God that you say is ultimate righteousness, justice, and truth, that is a form of legalism, judging by false standards. Secondly, presuming that the law is a way to be saved, the way of salvation. That is, by following the law, you earn merit and favor with God and therefore are saved. That's a form of legalism. The law cannot save you but it certainly does show that you need a Savior. That is very basic to biblical theology 101. The law shows us the depth and depravity of our sin. The law cannot save. Thirdly, legalism is binding the conscience. It can be binding the conscience where God has left it free. Adding other things. And again, this relates to judging by another standard. Adding things to the list of things ought, that you ought to do that are not biblically founded. Uh, Ted Tripp is a presenter. I was listening to some great lectures on parenting from him this week. He had this quote. He said, The genius of Phariseeism was reducing the law to what was keepable. The genius of Phariseeism was reducing the law to what was keepable. In other words, the Pharisees came up with a convoluted set of their own ideas, loosely associated with the Word of God. But in the end, what they were trying to do was earn their own salvation. In some ways, they were minimizing the law so that they could follow the standard. In other, in other ways, they're adding to the law because in their self-centeredness, they wanted to prove themselves better than others and made it so heavy and overbearing that others couldn't follow. But under all of this was this antichrist premise that the law and those that were its human agents were the key to salvation. They were the authority on righteousness. This is all hypocrisy. What is the purpose of hypocrisy? Ultimately, I submit to you the purpose of hypocrisy. 
of indulging this duplicitousness, of living in the way the Pharisees did, is to exalt oneself. We are well served in this way, but it leads to ultimately denying that we are sinners in need of sovereign grace. And if we live in such a way, we end up being the tyrants, being self-important, being self-idolaters, self-deceived, and ultimately deserving of judgment, the woes because we do not submit to the Lord. Notice what the Pharisees began to do. It says in, in verse 4 of chapter 23, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Instead of the Pharisees standing for a salvation system that removed people's burden by propitiatory sacrifice and shouldered the burden by the priestly duty in the temple, it was entirely the opposite. They were keeping them in bondage and putting more slavery on their back. Where the Pharisees sat and the way that they adjudicated their role only added to the weight and horror of the sin and slavery that it induced. Compare this, contrast this to Jesus Christ. Where he sits is different entirely. In the book of Matthew, it says in chapter 11, these glorious words that preceded this moment, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, verse 28, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Compare that to tying up heavy burdens, hard to bear, laying them on people's shoulders, yet they themselves are not willing to lift a finger. This is the difference between man-made ways of salvation and Jesus Christ, between the hypocrisy of legalism and the gospel, between Jesus Christ and the Pharisee. Recently in our Hebrew study, you'll recall in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, the author writes, He, Jesus Christ, is able to save to the uttermost because he ever lives to make intercession for them. What is the picture here? The picture is that of priesthood. We mentioned in the old, I believe it's uh, Exodus around 28 and 29 perhaps, where the, all of the uh, vestments of the priesthood, the high priesthood, are laid out in careful detail that Aaron, the high priest, must wear before he stepped into the holy place. And one of the implements or one of the uh, jewels or, or uh, uniforms that he would wear was onyx stones on his shoulders upon which the names of the tribes of Israel were listed. This was a picture of the one who would draw near to God so that those through him might be in good standing in God's favor since he would live, that is, Aaron, to make intercession for them. However, Aaron would die. This was the failure of the Old Testament priesthood, but it pictured one perfect order, uh, one who would satisfy the perfect order in the future. And so we have the fulfillment in Christ, who does not place burdens on our shoulders, but instead takes our name on his shoulders, goes into the presence chamber, intercedes on our behalf, and because of his satisfactory death, 
And because he lives forever, he saves to the uttermost and is the intercessor who always lives to take our burden of sin from our shoulders on his back and satisfy the payment it deserves. The chasm of contrast between the Pharisees and Christ could not be any broader. Where the Pharisees sat and where Christ sat was stark indeed. Let's move to point major point number two, Pharisees' deeds versus Christ's Beatitudes. Turn quickly with me to Matthew chapter 5. This is one of the sections where the positive teaching of the kingdom is listed. We must be careful to say in a message like this that we do not advocate, because the word does not, antinomianism. That is, there is nothing to do. There's no oughts after we come to Christ. There certainly are. In uh, Matthew 5, verse 3, for instance, the following, uh, the following orientation of the heart is commended. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, and so on. I'm sure you are familiar with those. I would encourage you later in your own study to kind of measure those back to back with the works and the deeds of the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew 23, where those who are blessed are the poor in spirit, according to Christ on the Sermon on the Mount in 5.3. In contradistinction, the Pharisees and the scribes, they sought the place of honor at feasts. Poor in spirit or seeking to be honored are places of privilege. Whereas those who truly understand their sin in the gospel mourn. They have a spirit that is quick to understand their depth of depravity. On the other hand, there are those who lust after the greetings in the marketplace. Good to see you, sir. Thank you so much. You're so great. Right, we have, you know, the accolades, the compliments, and the honor that was directed to the elite religious class, that was what the Pharisee hungered and thirsted for. Now, the meek are commended, and again, in the Beatitudes, in chapter 5, verse 5, meanwhile, the Pharisees sought the best seats in the synagogues, places of prominence and privilege. Those who are in right standing with the Lord, who understand the gospel, hunger and thirst for righteousness, whereas the Pharisees wore their phylacteries broad and proudly displayed their fringes. The merciful are directly contrasted by those who tie up people with heavy burdens. The pure in heart are opposed by those who do deeds just to be seen by others. The peacemakers are in opposition to a class who will not even move a finger to remove a burden. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are opposed by those who love to be called rabbi by others. And those who are willing to receive the evil spoken against them falsely really are in opposition to those who preach but do not practice. And so you see here in Matthew 23, it really is the anti-Beatitudes. At the introduction of this message, I mentioned to you that we must be careful in these sections to analyze our own heart. The Beatitudes are not a natural response. They are a supernatural outworking of the Holy Spirit's continual work of sanctification, making purer your own heart. It is a process that requires confession, repentance, work, discipleship, prayer, 
regular assembly and diligent discipleship and devotion to the Lord. Especially in our culture today, this is so evident when virtually everything for sale and everything that is pitched as an attractive pursuit for us in our nation, in our culture today, is meant to magnify, glorify, amplify, and publish self. Everything revolves around self these days, except Christians. Christians never revolve around self. Christians, though they might be a persecuted, marginalized, tiny minority in this society, they are poor in spirit. They are the least of these. They recognize the issue of their heart. They do not entertain for long periods of time self-serving life pursuits and pride. They aren't motivated for years and years to pursue vocations that simply make their story more compelling. They seek to lay down their life, take up their cross, follow the Lord, and pay the necessary cost, even at their own lives, uh, even their own life, if necessary, in order to glorify their King. Yes, they have moments of lapsing into a uh, you know, perhaps a backslidden state or an oblivious sense or become dull of hearing for a season. But there are scriptures written for us in that state. The book of Hebrews comes to mind, and so does our message this morning. Listen to it, saints. Come gather before the preaching of the word. Why? So that your heart may not shift from the Beatitudes to the Pharisees. From dying to self to serving self. We need this so much. Number three this morning, teachable contrasts in context. Tassels and phylacteries on the outside versus what was inside the phylacteries. What in the world is a phylactery and a tassel? Verse five, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. So a phylactery was a small leather pouch, okay? It's uh, imagine rolling up a piece of leather and then rolling up smaller still, a tiny scroll and slipping it inside. And then there's a strap of leather. You tie it around your forehead or around your arm. This was a sort of pious way to take literally what was figurative in the Old Testament, bind on your forehead and on your hand, your right hand, the law of God. And you remember these instructions from the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy specifically. In fact, four references would typically be bound up inside those leather pouches or phylacteries. Those references were... Exodus 13, approximately verses 2 through 10. Also in the same chapter, verses 11 through 16. Again, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And the final reference, same chapter, Deuteronomy 11. <coughs> I'm sorry, different chapter. Deuteronomy 11, verses 18 through 21. So if you go to those texts, you find that all four, I believe, reference, bind these words on your forehead, on your right hand. But they include other references also in context. Um, as Providence would have it last night, turn uh, quickly to Numbers 15, if you would, while I give you this little anecdote. As Providence would have it last night, my, I was uh, putting the kids to bed, and I uh, finally went to my room. My wife was relaxing to a classic musical, The Fiddler on the Roof. And let me jog your memory if you've ever watched that. Fiddler on the Roof, you remember some of the unique clothing that the traditional Jews, which are the main characters in the film, living in kind of a counterculture society in the motherland Russia. And one of their uh, things I noticed that they were wearing is little tassels all the way around their waist. 
Well, I believe that is a reference uh, taking again literally uh, some of these passages in the law. And this is what's in view um, when Jesus talks about these pretentious outward displays of piety or holiness, but they aren't because of the way uh, the Pharisees are interacting um, and displaying the attitudes of the heart. They aren't matched with an internal commitment to the same truth. So as we turn over here to uh, Numbers 15, I think we have a reference to what these tassels or, uh, uh, represented, uh, 37 through 44. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and to remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to, to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. I don't know if you caught the indictment there in the context of where these fringes or tassels were originally prescribed. But when Jesus says they do all their deeds to be seen by others, including tying scripture to themselves, and displaying prominently the longest fringes out or tassels out of everybody, what was missing? What was missing was the heart and intent of Numbers 15. Do not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. The tassels are meaningless if you follow your own heart and your own eyes. You may put on a display on the outward, of good Christian behavior. But if it is just that, if it's just superficial, if it doesn't represent something deeply rooted at the core of your being, then it is nothing but hypocritical fashion, but a hypocritical fashion statement. In Exodus chapter 13, another one of these references. Actually, let's go to Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, we've touched on this one. This is the most famous of all texts at the time of Jesus' preaching of the Bible itself. Uh, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, remember, this was tied up in the phylacteries, in those leather pouches the scribes and Pharisees so diligently wore. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them. Here it is. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. If you literally wrote on the doorposts of your house and gates the word of God, if you took literally this uh, uh, commandment to wear between the eyes and on the hand or arm, Scripture itself. But again, if you did not love the Lord your God with all your heart, what good was it? It is nothing. It is in fact testimony to your own hypocrisy. You are to teach these things diligently to your children, but they are to be as, uh, and they are to be present with you while you stand up, while you lay down, they are to be part and parcel of your entire lifestyle. But this is something that the outward is just symbolic of, but it's substantially 
represented in the heart. So these are the texts, and we see right in them, in the, in the context, the intent behind some of these, uh, uh, some of these uh, cultural or um, uh, things that were prescribed in the Old Covenant. So the, it strikes me as just absolutely ironic that when Jesus was speaking these words, that right in front of him were those listening who had very scriptures that he was referring to tied to their body. If we go back, for instance, in Matthew twenty-two thirty-four, the Pharisees, when they heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, gathered together, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And as they were nodding their heads, bits of leather was bouncing around with that exact passage of Scripture right on their noggin. And as they raised their hand to interject, tied to their arm was that exact Scripture. Do you see? You can have the Bible in your experience. You can be associated with Christianity. You can have a lot of Christian friends. You can appreciate to some degree, to some superficial measure, all of these things, but they can become absolutely empty, meaningless, fashionable traditions if they are not in the heart and in the soul. And this was the issue. This is the text and intent and the context of the phylacteries and the tassels. Now, one more point along these lines. Ironically, these passages were to be constitutionally central to the order to the freedom, to the liberty, to the flourishing, to the government, and to the instruction of the entire society of Israel. These messages that were tied up in the phylacteries, they came upon deliverance from Egypt and then upon ushering in to the promised land. These things, in fact, if they were not kept, these laws, if they were not part of the foundational fabric and the social order of the nation, not just people's hearts, but if they did not govern, as Jesus says, the second of the commandments is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Then the nation of Israel would become impotent, worthy of judgment, disintegrate, and fall apart. And that is exactly what happened. Now, the, again, the irony is palpable when we consider that it was these very scriptures that would be the foundation of their freedom. Their freedom from their own sin as they loved the intent and what the law prefigured and also the liberty of their society to live at peace and goodwill between their neighbors. So it is no surprise that because these truths were not bound to the hearts of the scribes and the Pharisees, that they were returning to slavery indeed. Remember as we said, that the besetting sins of influence are legalism, tyranny, hypocritical pride. Humanism rushes into the void of the scriptures and begins to tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. And the people remain slaves to their sin and slaves in society if they do not understand the intent and the foundational framework of the law of God. Briefly, just by way of instruction to or understanding when the law of God was commanded to be bound between the frontlets of the eyes and on the right hand, the idea there was that both in their understanding and in their action, 
they were to affirm the truth of God's holy word. But notice that there was a difference between what the uh, Pharisees confessed and their deeds. Jesus said, they claim to sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but do not do what they do. Though ironically, they physically had scriptures bound to their head and to their uh, arm, they did not have the scriptures bound both to their thinking and to their actions. There was a disconnect, a disconnect worthy of judgment. Finally, this morning, teachable contrasts in context. Let us consider the glory of men versus the glory of God. Because this is what this all boils down to. First of all, titles and the Christ. As we get to the close of our verses this morning, Jesus gives instructions to his disciples. Remember, they're listening in in the crowds as well as the scribes and Pharisees. He says, you are not to be called rabbi, verse 8, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Recall a few verses previous. What, we, what I submitted to you is one of the most important questions that you will ever ask yourself or would, could ever be asked of you. And this is in chapter 22, verse 42. Who do you think about the Christ? While the Pharisees were gathered together, verse 41, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? What they ought to think about the Christ is answered in his next statement, in his next message, in his next sermon. He says, you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. That is, you ought to think of Christ as your one preeminent teacher. Anything that adds, subtracts, contravenes what he has spoken is to be rejected, not followed. You yourself are to bow the knee to his instruction. Areas of your thinking in life that are not in conformity to him must be left aside, repented of, and you must repair to the standard of his gospel. What else are you to think of Christ? Well, neither be called instructors. You're not to compete with Christ's glory by saying, I'm a worthy instructor. I'm uh, an important person. I've achieved a glorious status of and pedigree by my great intellectual superiority through this instruction and, th and through that rabbi and this school and, and that system of higher education. No, for you have one instructor, the Christ. There is no education, no higher education than Christ. There is no education and instruction beside him. The only valuable education is where God is affirmed as Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Christ is the instructor of instructors. Every rabbi, every instructor, every self-styled teacher, every educator must submit to Christ. This is how we are to think of him. The greatest among you shall be the servant. He is the Christ. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Why? Because he's competing with the Christ and his glory. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Why? Because he serves to magnify the Christ. This is the contrast in context. The Pharisees and Sadducees existed to display, advertise, promote their schools themselves, their intellectual pedigree, their ability to understand expound in the scriptures because of their own intrinsic merit, and so on. Jesus Christ claims exclusive rights to that role. 
and all who propose, presume to compete with him will receive woes. He alone is the ultimate rabbi. What does rabbi mean in context? We find in this word, in the original language, its cognates include a great one, the expert, the honorable sir. It's a term that ascribes glory and authority and a specific preeminence to the person. And in that sense, that ultimate sense, the great one, expert, and honorable sir, Christ alone reserves that title for himself. And in a similar sense, the term father is used. Father in the original language would refer to progenitor, that which was responsible for the beginning, the nourisher, protector, the upholder, the source, the authority, the foundation. And in this way, we are to see that God alone is the heavenly father. And there is none who ought to be considered the progenitor, nourisher, protector, upholder of anything apart from him. Only under him is there any legitimate kingdom service, whether pastor, apostle, overseer. As we see these titles employed later in Scripture, all of them say we are but doulosses, slaves. Do you remember each epistle virtually is introduced? Paul, in a, a servant, a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. Why does he introduce himself this way? He doesn't introduce himself as the preeminent apostle, the one who's traveled to more churches than any other, the one who's reached uh, more outlying regions than any prior missionary. Paul does not introduce himself that way. His book jacket did not look like the ones on so many Christian bookstores today. Instead, he said, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Why did he do so? Because he understood this. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Paul, of all people, understood this. Turn with me in closing to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, in the providence of God, because he was such a gifted individual, I feel, God did a miraculous work first in his sovereignty. It allowed him to show such gross depravity that in his, his providence, Paul never forgot that he was the most wicked of all sinners. And because of this, God was able to use his superior zeal, and his pre, uh, prominent intellect. But Paul's zeal and intellect would have been only tyranny, only legalism, and only hypocritical pride if he hadn't met Jesus Christ in the gospel. After all, what was he doing before he got saved? Ravaging the church. When he got saved, a complete and total shift in his thinking happened, represented well by these words in 1 Corinthians 1.18. Mark read them to us in introduction this morning. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Notice this. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Notice verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world, or God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source, remember, Father, progenitor, nourisher, protector, upholder. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made, speaking of Christ now, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Last week, I believe it was this week maybe, a rock star died named David Bowie, 69 years old, 18 months battling with cancer, and he succumbed to death like the rest of every single one of us will. His prominence, his importance, the accolades of culture was not able to buy him one more breath. Now there were, you know, the typical godless rags, the pagan, you know, uh, periodicals that began to write and extol the greatness of this man. In 2002, I learned this on Generations Radio, they took note of this. In 2002, the BBC did a poll and they asked citizens of Britain, who are the most important Brits? Who are the uh, greatest Brits who have ever lived? Number 29 was David Bowie. (coughs) And that, that was who people voted for. Number 28 was William Wilberforce. Who was William Wilberforce? William Wilberforce was the Christian who by his convictions laid his life down and spent his entire political career against hook and crook advocating for the abolition of slavery because of the liberty of Jesus Christ on the foundation of the gospel. And by his efforts, I should say God's, through using this servant who laid down his life, slavery was overturned in Britain. Does the legacy of David Bowie come anywhere close to that of William Wilberforce? Well, maybe the New Yorker could shed some light on that. Notice this quote. He wrote songs that were willful participants in their own fragmentation. Describing the career, the artistry, and the work of this pagan, the New Yorker said he wrote songs that were the willful participants in their own fragmentation. What does that mean? You know what that means? That means that David Bowie popularized suicidal nonsense. And because of his great career of living anti the law of God to the bitter end, hopefully he repented on his deathbed, I don't know. But because of his career of utter lawlessness, exploring every aberrant behavior he could think of by his own confession, and because of his writing of these kinds of songs, The fools of this world exalted him to a status equal with one like William Wilberforce responsible for the abolition of slavery in the greatest nation of the world at that time. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, there will one day come a reckoning. There will come a last word. And everyone will stand before the judgment seat of the Jesus Christ who proclaimed the words we read this morning. And imagine for a moment Two, before his throne, David Bowie standing next to William Wilberforce. What do you think will be heard again if Bowie did not repent? Will he hear a glowing review of his music? 
You influenced a lot of people. On the basis of the poll of BBC in 2002, enter into the riches of my kingdom? No. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, and he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It goes on to say that those who are on his left will be cast out into outer darkness where there will be incessant, eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. How can we be found on the right side? I submit to you, when you realize the weight of your sin, that you are the lawless one who cared nothing for God's word. You deserve hell and only hell, and you throw yourself at the mercy of the only high priest whose very sacrifice of his own blood can save you. You humble yourself before his mighty work on Calvary. Then you and you become his servant. Whereas whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself in that way will be exalted and will hear those final words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let us close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we thank you for the precious truth of Scripture. We would be lost and without light in this world, stumbling as a blind man in darkness, if the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ had not shined on us by the Spirit's regenerating, resurrecting, and illuminating power through the pages of your Holy Scripture preached to us unto salvation. And so we owe our new life totally and completely to you. Lord, we've talked about the consequences of lawlessness, the consequences of self-worship this morning. Lord, I pray if there are those vestiges in our heart that would uh, serve us, I pray that we would repent of them and cast them aside. And I also pray that you would break our heart for the wicked world, that they might be able through the law proclaim, see their wretchedness and bow before the Lord of glory. Because today is the day of salvation and there is soon coming a day. It could be tomorrow, the next moment when it is too late. Let us be diligently about the Father's business, making you glorious, humbling ourselves, decreasing and increasing Christ, magnifying and glorying your holy name, dear Jesus. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.